You're listening to Lost and Sound, a podcast exploring music, identity, and the future. My name's Paul Hanford. I've always believed that one of the best ways we come together is through music. And through this series, I'm looking at how music can and is bringing us together now and in the future. From my base in Berlin, we'll be meeting artists from a range of disciplines from all across the world who are drawing on music right now. Some already exploring new ways of doing this. Today on the show, Chili Gonzalez. Hey, how are you doing? I hope you're having a beautiful day, beautiful night, beautiful morning, beautiful evening. I've kind of jumbled up the chronology there on the times of day, but whatever time it is, I hope you're having a really, really beautiful one. Um, you join me along the canal in Kreuzberg in West Berlin. And it's kind of vaguely spring-like, vaguely gloomy, one of those days, really. But a few hours ago, I had a chat with a Cologne-based artist uh, called Jason Beck, who is much more commonly known as Chili Gonzalez. I was so excited, quite nervous, actually, before we we had this chat this morning, um, because I've been into his music for so long um i was trying to pin down when i first was aware of chili gonzalez's music and i have one memory of working in a virgin megastore about 20 years ago in bournemouth and there was always this kind of scuffle between the staff over what would go on the the stereo that would play out into the shop and one of the things that enough of us could agree on in the kind of strands of musical commonality that we had between us was one of his albums, Uberallas. And I remember just the music coming on and the long hours selling CDs, occasionally turning a blind eye when people stole CDs because they just looked like nice people that wanted to listen to a bit of music all of that kind of stuff, it would speed up the time. And I just loved it. And it was a real surprise to me a few years later when I first heard solo piano um, and seen this transformation from what I thought of him at the time as making this kind of very sort of almost satirical, glitzy, lo-fi, crunchy electro-tinged, rap-tinged music to this beautiful chamber piano music. Obviously, I didn't know much about him at the time. I just, I was just so sort of like, wow, this is the same guy. This is incredible. Um, and ever since then, he's been one of these artists that always seems to remain pure to what he does. 
And that could be anything. Where do you start with Chili Gonzalez? Composer, singer, producer, pianist, rapper, bon viveur. Okay, so totally ignoring, for the sake of brevity here, anything he did in the 90s in Canada. I could mention him moving to Berlin in the early 2000s and declaring himself president of the Berlin Underground. And albums like Uber Alice and Presidential Suite that mixed a wild, eclectic bunch of elements like rap and electro. Then, just as the world got to know him maybe as a rapper, he reinvented himself with the first of a series of highly acclaimed solo piano albums. Often appearing on stage in a dressing gown by his piano, he holds the Guinness World Record for the longest solo concert, playing for 27 hours, 3 minutes and 44 seconds in Paris. He has his own music school, Le Conservatory. Not only that, he's collaborated with Daft Punk on Random Access Memories, been sampled by Drake, and teamed up with Jarvis Cocker for one of my personal favourites, the album Room 29. Did I mention he's written a book about Enya, too? Anyway, this is what happened when we had a chat. <laughs> um, and how, how has the last year been for you? Um, I've spoken with a lot of artists and some people have found it kind of like a time where they've just been able to get into creating. Other people have been more disrupted, basically. I don't like to talk about it too much, to be honest, because mm. I feel like this is, you know, everyone has such an individualized experience. It's a complex cocktail of, you know, what your, what part of your life had to change, you know, whether it's the personal life, the professional life, all that. Um, but I will say that I like the challenge of adapting. Mm. I've always felt that, um, in the absence of external constraints, I'll invent them. And this was a pretty heavy external restraint. And so I felt like I had a lot of practice in, in adaptation. Maybe I'm lucky that way. So I adapted and, um, you know, I, I had a lot of positive things I learned and a lot of negative things I learned like everyone, I suppose. Mm. I mean, your, your whole um, career, in, in terms of output at least, um, seems to be very much, we've seen a lot of it adapting throughout your career, you know, and a lot of um, reinvention. When, when we see the output, it seems very obviously like different phases and sometimes returning phases as well. But um, when you're actually, as, as a human being, um, this kind of process of, of of going of adapting is this kind of a very natural thing for you? Do you do you feel the urge to keep changing, or or is that more of just like a kind of a contrived thing that the outside world sees? I would just say that I'm I'm in it, and I'm not really planning ahead, but rather um, trying to find a way to remain interested in what I'm doing. And I would apply that to my personal life as well. I did move around a lot. I lived in probably seven houses in four different cities before I finished high school. Mm. And since then I have had, you know, phases of living in Berlin, living in Paris now between Cologne and London. So I am definitely used to it. I'm used to the idea that the, the frame is changing and being interested in what that brings out in me and finding that, 
keeping myself interested is the only way um, for me to uh, not become the kind of uh, artist that becomes too comfortable, especially as I get older. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I see some artists that I that I came up with, you know, when we were all in our twenties, let's say in the in the in the mid nineties. And I can see some of them stagnate a little bit and cling a little bit too much to what they see as some sort of golden age or what they think people expect of them. And I'm proud to say that I haven't succumbed to that just yet. Mm. Uh, And that might be a product of the way I grew up with all this frame changing but uh, I found that it was the way to bring out the best in myself. And you know, I can always remember this moment in my, in my 20s. My brother is a very successful film composer. Mm-hmm. And when I was in my early 20s and still really struggling, he was already quite successful. And he would kind of throw me a few bones, a little bit of work here and there that he thought I was appropriate for. And some TV show he was working on couldn't afford a Sonic Youth song to uh, clear for their um, synchronization uh, that they wanted in the background of some scene. And they said, hey, can you come up with some ersatz sort of Sonic Youth-ish type song that we can just have on in the background for 10 seconds because we can't afford the real song? He said, oh, I think my brother will be good at that. And so he said, hey, do you want to make 500 bucks or something? And so I went to my four track and I wasn't particularly a big Sonic Youth fan. I was aware of them. But I listened to them a bit. I had some friends who were into them. And so I thought, okay, I can try to do this. And I made a song with a bunch of guitar and feedback Mm. and noisy drums. And it still sounded like me. And it was really a revelation that even when the outward um, superficial surface of the music I make, which would normally have keyboards and certain kind of um, aesthetics attached to it, even when I removed those and replaced those with what I thought was someone else's. And when I thought I was channeling Sonic Youth, all I was doing was channeling myself in the end. And that always stuck with me as a kind of moment that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of superficial changes that will not change the fundamentals of my artistic voice. Uh, and that permits me to try a lot of different things, even getting outside of music and doing a movie or a book. In the end, my, my artistic vision will survive all of those formal changes, those superficial changes. And um, that's a very liberating revelation to have. Mm. I, I love that kind of thing. I think, um, when, I think when, particularly when people are like beginning and learning music, there's this idea of kind of maybe the, the best way is to emulate something, to kind of sort of almost like study it or something and and to kind of maybe find your own voice naturally coming through that. Um, and I think sometimes, do you feel that people feel that if they emulate something to begin with, they'll just get lost and not be able to find their voice? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is, and, and it might be true for certain people. Well, I guess it all depends on your personality and, and you know, how solid is that artistic core? I believe if your artistic core is solid, it will bear um, emulation-based study 
but some people feel that any kind of study or any kind of um, knowledge of the past will poison you or take away from your natural artistic voice. It's, it's a bit of a punk rock myth, I suppose, mm. that training will turn you into some kind of um, copycat or robot. Uh, and that might be true for some people. I, I, I can't say. I only know my own experience. And when I was meant to write a fugue in the style of Bach, I could still hear myself within that when I was studying. And so I only felt that it was um, gravy at that point for me <laughs> to, um, yeah, whether it was a Bach fugue or this sonic youth experience I had with my brother, I always felt that um, I could hear myself within it. Um, so it always felt like fun to do those kind of thought exercises. And, you know, when I'm teaching, I have a little music school that I run every mm -hmm. year called the conservatory. Unfortunately, not the last two years, but, um, and it's all based on these kind of thought exercise kind of, it's all based on this kind of Bach fugue sonic youth style, mm. um, you know, whether it's an emotional constraint, whether it's a song title, um, whether it's the idea that I'm going to force them to uh, compose a song on an instrument they don't normally play on. And I see that revelation happening in the students as it happened to me. Uh, that um, and this, this, this I suppose also leads me to why I dare to attempt to recreate certain musical styles on the piano that for most people would seem to be linked to their technology or their instruments. Mm -hmm. For example, a drum machine for electronic music. I feel you can give the feeling of electronic music playing a piano with two hands without actually using any electronics. Mm -hmm. I believe in a kind of translatability of musical styles, that a musical style, just like my artistic voice, um, is not linked to any superficial or formal elements. There's something deeper in what a musical style is or what in an artistic voice is. At least I believe there should be. Mm, I, I agree. I agree. And, and to talk about the conservatory as well, um, what was the idea initially about um, setting that up? just to kind of recreate the long and complicated road I had meeting people, being influenced by them, learning a lesson uh, and trying to essentially build an experience over 10 days that would recreate that for the students. You know, whether it's understanding that making music with your friends is a force multiplier of, of musical power um, that's why I choose this group and we sort of make them live together. And over the course of these days, they realize that, um, making a kind of musical family out of these people who come from all over the world, um, they will experience that or by forcing them to do so many musical exercises that they inevitably have some failures along the way, gives them the visceral experience of failure being a good teacher a lot of people will tell you that failure is a good teacher. It's become a cliche. You can go to different lectures and hear thousands of artists tell you, but that was always a little tantalizingly incomplete for me because to hear someone say a platitude is very different from actually experiencing it. So the idea of the conservatory was to make the students experience what normally would just be platitudes for themselves 
I don't think there's any replacement for that. And there's something frustrating about hearing a musician say, um, don't pay attention to what uh, other musicians are doing and try to, you know, be yourself. It's like, okay, I've heard that a thousand times. How can I create an experience where they will actually experience that? And that's, that's what the conservatory was, was created to try. It's a laboratory where I try to actually create real world versions of what are normally uh, these cliches that constantly circulate around us. Mm. So you have a very kind of, I, f I feel a very egalitarian approach to music generally, would you, would you say? Well, I, I believe there's a time to be a respectful student of music and there's a time to be a disrespectful child slash punk rocker slash iconoclast, whatever you want to call it. I don't believe you should have to choose between those two modes. I think you have to be clever enough to know when you should be nose to the grindstone and understand that you are standing on the shoulders of all the musicians that came before you, all the artists that came before you. And there's a time to say, fuck all those people. I'm just going to act out and do my own thing now. Uh, and I think it's all about knowing when to switch from one to the other. And the moments where my, my career worked the best was when I got that balance right, when I got the timing right of knowing when to be a goody two-shoes and when to be a enfant terrible. <laughs> um, and you mentioned about timing right then, and you also sort of mentioned about like mistakes. Are there any mistakes that kind of come to your mind that you feel uh, are particularly vivid for you in terms of maybe that you learned from, um, or maybe that you just go, oh, that, that was a mistake, that thing there? Absolutely. There's too numerous, too numerous to count. But uh, if I just think of, um, I guess one that comes to mind would be an album I did in 2008 called Soft Power. And I believe that I, um, I tried to smooth out the edges of my musical personality in the hopes that I would be able to expand my audience. This was 2008, the last gasp before the internet changes fully sort of um, took. And so there was still some kind of remnant of maybe some sort of late teenage fantasy of being on a major label. I signed to a major label at that time, uh, Mercury France. And I did an album in which I kind of decided to make myself a bit more palatable, a little bit less myself, so to speak, in hopes that I could you know, reach more people. It didn't work. And it really led to, I think, the moment that began the modern era of my career in which I felt my expectations and reality have been in harmony ever since. That's when I started my own label. It's when I played a 27-hour Guinness World Record concert something that only I could conceivably pull off. Uh, and so it taught me to be more and more myself, to, to make the edges rougher, not smoother. And that would actually, very slowly, but that's the way that I would be able to reach more people. Um, the quick fix of trying to be more palatable turned out to be a mistake uh, and I believe that's a mistake anytime someone tries it. Uh, you know, 
unless I suppose they're, um, you know, really aiming for something different than I was. But I tend to believe that if someone has huge mainstream popularity, it's not born of cynicism or, um, I just think that they are being more and more themselves and they just belong in a different world than I do. I don't really believe you can write a hit song out of cynicism. I don't believe you can make it to the top of, of the pops as it were by being cynical and by pandering. Even if it seems like that to some artists, they think, Oh, it's easy. You just write a three minute song. You just have a hook with a, ooh, ah, and all this, you know, when I hear people say that it must be easy to write a hit song, the obvious retort is, well, if it was so easy, how come you haven't done it yet? Mm. I mean, this this goes on a, a kind of quote you said around the Enya book about does music have to be smart or does it just need to go straight to the heart? Um, and and I feel that you know, in terms of like the egalitarianism as well, like what what are you what what is that you're you're actually saying there? Well, that's not actually my quote. Believe Ooh, it or not, okay. <laughs> that, that that is a rough trade books came up with that quote, mm. which, which I like. Yeah, uh, but that is not not really my quote. I I would probably you know say it in a more nuanced way, which I'll say now, which is for me for music <clears throat> to be successful, I think it has to be useful. That is to say <clears throat> that you should not look down your nose at music that simply fulfills a function. If it fulfills its function, I believe you've already won the game of art. And so I look back to my first few albums before solo piano, where I was doing a very clever electro rap, very knowing, very insidery, um, and I remember the reactions that I would get from other musicians. In particular, I remember meeting Daft Punk, RIP. Uh, and I met them and I was thrilled to meet them. I admired them enormously. And I remember meeting one of them and him saying something to like, ah, I really like what you're doing. I see what you're doing. You know, I recognize what you're doing. And, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, I feel seen by this mm. person I admire enormously. And it seemed very satisfying to me. Then I put out solo piano. And then maybe a year after that, I ran into this half of Daft Punk again. And he said, dude. I don't think he said dude, because he's French. <laughs> uh, he said, mec, which is dude in French. <laughs> and he said something like, uh, you know, your piano album is the only thing that will get my son to sleep. His newborn son. Mm. And I suddenly felt this warmth come over my body that was unlike any of those, I see you, those winks of acknowledgement that I'd previously, you know, eaten. I realized those were crumbs. This was a full meal of satisfaction. I was useful to one of my heroes. I wasn't just being recognized by one of my heroes. And I started to get a whole different kind of fan letter. People telling me that my music was helping them get through a difficult time. All those kinds of reactions suddenly, and including, by the way, by the way, we put on your piano album 
at my last dinner party. That also was something that was surprisingly satisfying for me. And I realized that to be useful was where I was going to orient my, my musical energy, my artistic mm. energy. And I've kind of stuck with that ever since, whether it's the conservatory where I want to be useful to other musicians, whether it's my book about Enya, which I hope may be useful for people to examine their own tastes and try to sort of, you know, do that culling and see, oh, I might only be interested in that because of certain parts of my life or because I was reacting against my older siblings taste or because I wanted to be part of a social group. But there's this other music that brings me a kind of goosebumps that I can't really explain and understanding that there is a more pure taste linked to childhood before there's a certain self-awareness. I hope that can be useful for people. I hope that by making a Christmas album that I can be useful to people and give them a kind of Christmas album that they wouldn't normally find when they're looking at those cynical pandering cash in Christmas albums. So to be useful has become a kind of mantra for me ever since I felt those reactions to the first solo piano album in 2004. Mm. And to be thought of as clever, to be recognized as talented has taken a backseat mm. to being useful. Uh, and that's the long way of saying, don't look for your music to be thought of as smart. It can be smart. It's nice to be lauded as intelligent, I suppose, but it will not be a full meal compared to being the soundtrack of someone's life or simply helping them in a matter as simple as getting their kid to sleep. Mm. That's valuable. Yeah, very much so. Um, and and you, um, in an article I read, you were talking about chamber music and kind of about the kind of the democratization um, of music through chamber music. And you kind of drew a comparison uh, that going on to now in terms of like that was perhaps the beginning stages in Western academic music, at least anyway, um, of liberating music for the masses. And in a way, I kind of see there's a connection between that as being something useful as well. And it takes it, it sort of de hierarchizes. Oh no, it's not really a proper word, de hierarchizes, sorry. But uh, it kind of it, uh, democratizes music. Um, can, you, can you sort of elaborate a little bit more about what you were talking about, about uh, chamber music? Because I know that there's something that you do as well. And it's something that, you know, I feel in your music. Yes, well, I think chamber music came along at a time when society was changing and there was a kind of change, this sort of violent throes of going from monarchies to democracies in the late 19th century and the idea of a middle class and the idea of a kind of aspirational um, society in which there would be a piano in every home and everyone suddenly sort of had access to music, which had previously been, you know, uh, kind of stuck in either the church system or the monarchy, um, aristocracy. All those things were kind of dying out. And, and the only way for regular people to aspire to sort of have some part of that was through playing the piano at home and or learning instruments and these other kinds of pieces that were 
essentially less pretentious. They were miniatures. They were pieces that anyone could play. And this is when classical music gets very interesting for me because I'm not so interested in the kind of monumental elite works that tend to canonize a composer and uh, put them in the pantheon. Symphonies, operas, big pieces like that. Mm. And suddenly there were a bunch of people who could be essentially, you know, middling composers who would write little two-minute pieces that anyone could play. And this is a time that I think uh, classical music started to approach something like the format of pop music that we have today. Shorter pieces with essentially one or two very good ideas um, developed in a way that is privileges the pleasure in the ear of the listener. And so I don't know if it's about democratization because I think it was like today, there's a certain privileged class that is able to have access to these kinds of things. Mm. And it's very easy to forget about people who were really struggling for whom perhaps having a piano in their home wasn't the first um, uh, priority. But um, I've come from a uh, definitely a decidedly middle-class background in Canada. I had piano lessons. I was exposed to a kind of education that allowed me to appreciate art and literature. And so we are still talking about a fairly thin slice. But in terms of the music that has survived from that time, I believe it kind of essentially is the birth of entertainment, I would say. This is also the first rumblings of celebrity musicians such as Franz Liszt or Paganini, people who were really interested in connecting with their audience and using anything that they had to be able to do so, uh, meaning they would allow their personalities to be visible and, and, and feelable, if that's a word, on stage, knowing that storytelling around music when done right, can make the music more powerful. Mm. That's perhaps what separates me from this new crop of young neoclassical artists who now do instrumental music, but still somehow believe in a certain myth of the artist as a remote, pure, elite being. Mm. I don't subscribe to that. I want to use everything at my disposal, whether it's my sense of humor, my sense of showmanship, all of that can make the music more powerful because I want to create a lasting, strong, fun bond with my audience. And that I think is a, an attitude that was born around that mid 19th century to late 19th century. For me, a golden age of music as living art, for people to 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 feel that they could participate in mm -hmm. and they could go watch a recital hear a piece and because the technology didn't exist yet to just hear a recording the closest thing was to buy the sheet music and play it mm -hmm. in the home and uh that's that's a wonderful little magic trick i think that was uh happening around that time that i'm still trying to recreate <laughs> and, and do you think there's a connection between that like um, the process of going from big, big symphonies to chamber music to be a little bit like going from uh, artists 15, 20 years ago, having to kind of go and record in a studio to some kid being able to just get uh, like an illegal crack of Ableton on their laptop and be able to make 
music at home themselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been a wonderful thing to witness, and um, I suppose I came up in the very beginning stages of that was four track recorders, mm. which my older brother and I, you know, really came up between ages of you know eleven and sixteen. We were sitting there trying to layer music and and learn to play different instruments so we could layer ourselves and sing multiple harmonies and understand that 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 power, which previously felt like you say it was felt like a very elite thing to be able to pay and go into a studio and do that, suddenly that power was in our hands. You know, an eleven year old and his fourteen year old older brother could suddenly squint and feel like the thing we made was the same as what we were hearing coming out of a Bee Gees record mm. was, uh, was very, very empowering. And, um, you know, it's only gotten more intense, obviously, because now the, the, the quality of music you can make in your bedroom, you know, in French, your bedroom is called your chambre. So mm. musique de chambre in ah. French, chamber music is literally music you make in your bedroom in French. And I think there's, uh, there is something in that linguistic connection. For sure. I love that. So now we have genre producers rather than composers so much. Exactly. I love that. Um, and um, and I'm kind of talking about like humour as well. Um, you kind of touched on that a little bit now. A lot of artists feel a little bit uncomfortable about approaching humour with their music. I don't get that impression with you at all. I think you mentioned earlier on you use what's necessary at the time. Um, was there a process of, of becoming comfortable with using humour for you? Yeah, there's a, a delicate balance. You don't want the humour to overshadow the music. And, and it's, it's a fine line between being an artist that people come to your show to hear the songs that they know from your albums and previous concerts. There's a fine line between that where I live mm. and the one man show, the Tim Minchin of it all, the, you know, or even the Reggie Watts of it all. These are performers I respect. I think Tim Minchin is brilliant. I think Reggie Watts is brilliant. I don't know many people who buy their albums and zone out to them or who listen to their albums because they, they're in that mood where they need the music to take on their melancholy. I don't want to cross over to that. I don't think I would be good at it, first of all, but it's important to me that that humor is, is there to support the music. Mm. And that's a fine line. There are, uh, there are moments where I definitely crossed over and felt like, uh-oh, I seem to be crossing over into being a kind of musical comedian rather than a funny musician. I'd rather be a funny musician than a musical comedian. Uh, and that's not to, to be a snob against the people who do that. It just mm -hmm. didn't feel right to me when I would find myself on the other side of that line. Um, and laughter to me is a tension release. And I, that's the reason that I want to employ it most, most of all on stage, but sometimes in the music itself here and there. And um, I remember reading about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and some of those nonsensical lyrics that he would come up with, like those weird, that weird song where he says, brush your teeth over and over again. Oh, yeah. And there's the, the vegetable song as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm. I, I, look, I'm not an expert. And if there's a, a Beach Boys, you know, <laughs> expert listening, I'm, I'm clearly getting it wrong. Please, you know, 
Um, sorry for that. <laughs> but, but what I do remember is reading an interview in which he explained that he, he wants the ridiculousness to be part of the music because it's a valve, it's a tension release. And when people have that tension release, the music has, has a clearer path to get in. Mm. It, it's kind of short circuits people's resistance maybe to feeling other emotions that he wants them to feel. And that's something that I always kept in mind, as well as maybe a certain insecurity I have when I'm on stage of knowing whether the audience is really with me or not. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're on the highway and the, tr the truck in front of you has a, how's my driving kind of sticker, <laughs> or, you know? And I always feel like I'm like, how am I driving everyone? And if I can, after a few songs of pure music, I need to check in and make sure they're still with me. I, I, I do something humorous. I make a joke. I do a routine. And I hear that laughter, which is involuntary. You, you can't fake laughter. You can fake polite applause. And so I need to check in on something more visceral. I need to check that they're involuntarily still with me. And the laughter functions not only as a valve for them, but as a way of me to sort of, okay, they're still with me. It gives me that valve and that tension release as well. It goes both ways. Mm, I love that. I love that. And, um, and something you said somewhere else is you, you sort of mentioned that um, you see music. And I think this was in, in connection with the conservatory um, as a form of resistance um, connected to fractures in our society. Um, I'm always kind of aware taking quotes. I'm not sure, you know, like they can, they're always sort of said in one time, you know what I mean? And it might be a couple of years of later, course. but I, I'm wondering if that, yeah. that still relates to you or if that has any gravitas to you today, for example. Hmm. I, I don't really, I, I don't really recognize that word. It's not really a word I would, hmm. maybe, but maybe, maybe, if I have to guess what I meant from the quote, <laughs> because as you say, over 20 years, you say a lot of shit. Um, <clears throat> I think what I may have been referring to is that if you look at what is common between musical styles, you can kind of extrapolate that out into a kind of humanistic view. Meaning, when you focus on differences between people, nations, ethnicities, classes, social groups, um, you are fundamentally putting up barriers. And you just have to remember that there's another way of looking at things, which is looking at what's in common between things. And I've always tried to look at music in a way where I look at what's in common between you know, the eras of music and the genres of music. And there are always going to be exceptions because there are also hundreds of cultures in the world that I'm certainly not familiar with. So I don't mean this to be exclusionary or Eurocentric, but I do have my limits in, of my experience. So I am going to speak as a European and I'm going to speak as someone who fundamentally is versed in the music that I, that I was taught, which is essentially Western classical music and pop music and 
all the music that we love in the 20th century, which is, you know, mostly coming from America and mostly coming from African-Americans, if we're honest. All of that still has a certain commonalities, I would say. Uh, and maybe coming from a position of privilege, I'm able to look at those. I'm aware of that, that this is probably coming from a place of, of privilege to say, oh, I'm going to look at what's in common between all of these. But I feel like there's a certain... It's a little bit like that book, uh, The Seven Plots, or when you look at uh, The Hero's Journey, Joseph yeah. Campbell, or a Canadian literary critic called Northrop Fry, who's always looking for what are the fundamentals of storytelling? Mm. Whether it's in folk tales or modern literature, you can sort of find these common um, patterns. And I've always been fascinated by looking for these common patterns in music the idea of tension and release, the idea of storytelling, starting somewhere, having a problem and resolving it. And I feel you can find that in a snatch of four notes melody. You can find that within a whole three minute song. You can find that within the arc of someone's career. You can find it within the arc of two hours over a concert. It's almost like cells. Cells can reproduce on a very microscopic level which would be the tension and release in a melody of four notes. Or a cell can also be observed in how a society uh, is organized. It's like a cell. A city can be considered a cell by some people who study urban movement and groupings and sociology and things like that. That might be how you look at how a concert tells an entire story. So... I try to do that with my pop music masterclasses where I would try to draw some parallels between a technique that I hear being used in a Pharrell Williams song and something in a very famous Mozart song. Say, oh, you see how the bass and the melody move in parallel motion? Well, that's a kind of poetic device that sort of speaks to how maybe people move in parallel motion. And why is that so appealing? Well, Obviously, it was appealing enough that Mozart uses it in this famous piece and that Pharrell is still using it today. Whether Pharrell is aware that he's using parallel motion is not the point. Mm. I'm not trying to um, throw some academic stardust onto what I consider to be low culture. I'm just trying to get past that equivalency and go deeper inside and say the tools being used are the same. That, to me is a way of transposing the idea of humanism to music, the idea of looking for what's in common, look for what unites us rather than what divides us, so to speak. Do you feel that, um, I mean, without wanting to go into the pandemic, but do you feel optimistic for um, the way people can make music in the future going forward? Well, people always find a way. I mean, music just gets, in, in a certain sense, it gets reduced in that we we hear that on the surface of music there are seemingly less elements you know especially in the pop music that's made today um however it's fascinating to me that when you zoom in it's still all those same storytelling elements and i think that you can have a really complicated symphony that gets the storytelling wrong and fails just as you can have a minimalist pop song that gets the storytelling wrong and fails just as you can have it succeed by getting that 
fundamental storytelling right because storytelling is what will have a make a listener identify you know you can hear let's just use an example of um you know a baseline um it just pops into my head right now from that song i'm so fancy by uh iggy azalea featuring charlie xcx do you remember that Ooh, one yes yes about five years ago do 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 that's my bad. Exactly. But most of it, but so the baseline goes, if, I, if, I, if I'm, you know, um, don't want to offend any Azaleans out there, but I believe it goes, bum, 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 bum. And I always thought, oh, there's nothing going on. What is that? It's just a repetitive riff. And yet, if you zoom in, you hear that the first of those phrases has a little syncopation in it, which is to say the third note comes a little bit sooner than you would expect. It goes, bum, 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 bum. And that third bum, it kind of leaves an open space. It creates the feeling of openness. You could argue it's almost like a question. The second phrase, all of the notes are on the beat. When things are on the beat, they tend to feel more like resolutions. Second phrase goes, bum, 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 feels like an answer. So even in a minimalist song, which literally has no other musical elements except this bass line, you have a question followed by an answer. And that is something we can relate to. I would dare to say that if, if that song only had bum, 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 if it was only resolution without that little hint of tension from that first syncopation, I don't think the song would have grabbed people. I don't think it possibly wouldn't have been as big a hit. It possibly would have completely failed because music has to have storytelling in it. And, uh, even when it seems like there isn't, if, it's, if the song has connected with that many people, just keep zooming in until you find where the storytelling is because I will bet my life that it's there. If it, if it succeeds in connecting with people, it means by definition that people have identified with it. The reason I'm optimistic is because we still have a song that comes out every couple of months where everyone identifies, where everyone can feel part of it. If we keep having these hits, if, if, if there's always a chance for a song to become a moment, that means that there's people that are doing the storytelling right. Thank you, Jilly. Thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> um, Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> so that was Chili Gonzalez chatting with me. For Lost and Sound on the 23rd of March 2021. Really want to thank Chile for having a good chat there. And 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 basically I felt I learned I felt I learned something. I felt I mean off the top of my head, this made me think about that Iggy Azalea song in a completely, completely new light. And I haven't actually started doing the little bit of rudimentary editing I do to the podcast yet, and I'm sure I'll learn more when I listen back. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed that. I hope you're having a brilliant experience with life this hour, (laughs) and I'll see you next week. Take care. Thank you for listening. Lost and Sound is written and produced by me, Paul Hanford. Title music by ESO.
big thanks to Kieran Yates in the UK for mastering the levels. And this episode is being hosted by Bear Radio. And you can check out other English language podcasts from Berlin by going on bearradio.org. And if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe and leave a comment. It really does help. And you can also help with the production costs of Making Lost and Sound by buying me a digital coffee, if you wish, at coffee.com. There's a link in the socials. Take care and speak to you soon.